and welcome to the Shiro Editor's Corner, a completely new and unscripted series of mini-casts with your hosts Dave and Peter. Come join your elder Shiro's as we reminisce on our favorite Saturn memories in this new and nostalgia-packed podcast series. Hey everyone, Saturn Dave here, and uh, I've got Peter with me. How are you doing, Peter? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Dave? Doing great. I'm really excited to cover this cast uh, this week. Been doing a lot of research. That's pretty much all that's been going on with me. But we did recently put out um, a cast episode about Saturn hardware. So I think that if folks are just jumping in at this point, um, check out the last two casts. We talked about our origins with the Saturn and, you know, our memories of how it launched and then the hardware. And that was a lot of fun. Um, For this episode, I admit I cheated a little bit. Because the whole idea here is this is supposed to be kind of off the cuff, unscripted, and just talking from our memories, which there will be a lot of. But um, this week, we're talking about Nights into Dreams, which is both my favorite and your favorite Saturn games. I think it's your favorite game of all time, right? Sure is. Yep, you got it. So yeah, I mean, I feel like there's absolutely no way we're going to really be able to cover this game completely. (laughs) So, you know, I had to, of course kind of take a few notes, you know, just so I make sure, you know, we catch most of the important things. Oh, you know, to be honest, I did the same because I realized that this game has been so important to me as a gamer for so many years now that, you know, without notes, there's, there's no way I would be able to convey anywhere near, you know, everything that this game has meant to me over the years and what I've been able to do with it, et cetera. So, you know, I've got a couple bullet points to, to look at as well. So don't feel too bad. Well, what does this game mean to you, if I'm going to put you on the spot? <laughs> you know, that, okay, well, what a great lead-in question. So my real sort of start with video games was with the um, uh, the Genesis and the Super NES era, and I was a Genesis guy. And of course, the sort of flagship games being the Sonic series, those were just, you know, I really looked highly upon those games. And, you know, when the Saturn came around, along with the... The, the PlayStation and the Nintendo 64, you know, those mascots weren't really available right away. I, at least they weren't with uh, Sega. So when the Nintendo 64 was getting ready to launch and Sonic Team was working on a Saturn game, I thought that, you know, this is it. We're going to have an amazing sort of Sonic game that's just going to blow everything else out of the water. You know, and it'll show everybody who who thought the Saturn wasn't going to cut it or it wasn't quite, you know, good enough as a console. I had no doubt that, that you know, some amazingly awesome Sonic game was coming out and uh, it would put all, all the doubts to rest. And then no Sonic game came. It was Knights <laughs> instead. And so initially, before I had even played it, before I had really sort of read anything about it or kind of digested any any of the um, uh, uh, details about the game, I was disappointed that it wasn't Sonic. And, you know, it, it, most of my information came from, you know, magazines. That was the way that you sort of got got mm-hmm. um, game information back then. And I have to admit that most of the folks who wrote uh, for the magazines, the editors and the writers and whatever, they, they shared that sentiment. Everybody wanted a Sonic game. You know, what, what is this Knights thing? Like, what is, you know, get this out of here. Give me Sonic, right? So, <laughs> and, and you know, I was one of those people. And 
you know, Knights to me is an acquired taste in a way, because even the first few times I played it, I it took me a while to understand what was going on. It wasn't as intuitive as Sonic was in 16-bit, or for that matter, to be perfectly frank, as Mario was in, in Super Mario 64. So it took a while to understand, like, what it is, what is it that I'm sort of experiencing? What am I trying to accomplish to, to you know, progress in the game and whatever? And over time, as you got to sort of learn the game and it became more intuitive, there's just this genius behind it that, that you know, is it, it's not even all that deep. But once you kind of dive into it, it just becomes this marvelous, marvelous, almost hypnotic experience as a game. Mm-hmm. And sort of looking back holistically... To me, it is the epitome of what a video game is. You know what I mean? It's pure. It's unadulterated. There mm. isn't, you know, there. there's as much or as little complexity behind it as you want to give it. You can interpret it as much or as little as you want or need. You right. can pick it up and play it for 10 minutes and, you know, have a good run and be satisfied. Or you could sit there for hours and, and, and play it. There's different goals you can set for yourself. Maybe you want to get a high score. Maybe you want to achieve some other, you know, objective of yours. And then there's little sort of things tucked away within the game that that are just waiting for you to explore or to leave alone if you so choose. So to me, it was just it was it was massively different from. Um, you know, what I had expected a video game to be. And at the end of the day, you know, one of the main premises of the game, of course, is the scoring. And that is that that's pure video game, isn't it? To try to better your own skills, to try to get a higher score, you know. So mm-hmm. it just it just it hits every single checkbox for me in terms of what a great, great video game should be. So that's what it means to me. It to me, Nights into Dreams is a gamer's video game. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's it's just it's that that kind of a, a product. And I like same so same question to you now. What does knights mean to you? So, you know, I agree with everything you just said, of course. Knights means a lot to me. Uh I don't want to get like too mushy or sentimental, but I mean obviously I don't even think I would be here doing this podcast if knights mm-hmm. didn't exist. You know, I mean, because I openly admit that that's the clincher. That was the the reason that I you know, bit the bullet Daytona kind of got me interested in the Saturn, but Knights is the reason that I bought a Saturn because this was a game I had to have. I had to play this game. And I mean, then it could have been terrible, <laughs> you know, it could have yeah. been, but it, instead it was wonderful. And, you know, it's funny because it dawned on me that in five plus years of doing this podcast, doing this Sega Saturn Shiro podcast, we have not once done a Nights into Dreams episode. Like we have done, we've covered Christmas nights uh, early on, you know, back in the early days of the podcast, uh, we covered Christmas nights because it was, you know, de facto Christmas episode. What are we going to talk about? Right. But we've never done nights. You know, we have covered some of the most niche games on the Saturn, but we really stayed away from like the flagship, one of the flagship titles. And I think part of that is because I almost feel like I'm not worthy to really, you know, touch this, you know, like, and some people might think that sounds stupid, especially the folks who are not convinced the folks that don't like the game or they haven't been sold on it. But it's like you said, I kind of feel like Knights is a game that was judged and has been judged based on what it's not rather than what it is. Mm. It's not a full 3d platformer. It's not Mario 64. It wasn't a Sonic game, you know, so it's like kind of unfair. I picked up my copy right after Christmas 96, you know, and, uh, you know, of course, 
I wasn't reading the magazines and stuff, and I really didn't care about another Sonic game. You know, I mean, I liked the Sonic games okay, but I was a, like I said, admittedly a Nintendo kid at that time. And, you know, so I really didn't care if we had another, you know, 3D Sonic game or whatever. I was just kind of like saw this game and I was like, okay, I want this instead of Mario 64. Whatever this is, this looks amazing to me. And uh, it's crazy. Knights means a whole bunch of things to me. But some of the things I wonder if I'm just biased because I have so many emotional attachments to this game, you know? Oh, but you know what? That's part of the charm. So, you know, nowadays when a blockbuster game comes out, you know, within no time at all, you know, most of the secrets are online. Most of the game has been dissected. There's guides and, and you know, video um, uh, playthroughs and everything. Like, you know, you could absorb and sort of consume a game that way very quickly upon its release. And that just wasn't a thing in 96. Like, that just couldn't be done, really. I mean, short of some magazine articles and what have you, like, that was pretty well it. So... I think Knights was a very personal experience that way, you know? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. each of us, you know, inevitably, the ones that loved the game will have those experiences and those memories to sort of fall back onto. And, you know, to me, that's very precious because that kind of paradigm is gone now with the advent of the internet and whatever, and it can never come back. So right. a lot of my memories, you know, if, if I had to do this all over again, they it, it wouldn't happen the same way anymore because it can't. So, you know, you know, don't, you know, don't discard that. I think that's actually part of the charm of the game and, and the appeal to it. And the fact that it endures for us to this day, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know about you, but I still play nights on a regular basis. Like I said, it's just such a, such a gamer's game, you know, that you can just dive into it at any moment. It, it is, you know, it, it has infinite replayability and that's actually something that it shares with Mario 64. You can't deny the link that those games are kind of tied together because they both came out at the same time. They were both compared to each other. They, they were both confused, you know, in terms of like what mm-hmm. they were going for. And, um, and they were both designed by genius programmers on either end, you know, it's like, so they have a, a lot in common and yet they're completely different. But I mean, Mario 64, whether you like it or not, it's infinitely playable. People are doing speed runs still. They're still finding out ways to like run that game faster and keep playing it. And by the same way, you know, I mean, Nights into Dreams, you can play and be like a 200,000 scorer or you can play and be like a 1 million score. You know, like it, yeah. it, it really just is up to you and you against the game, you know, and just, uh, you know, some people really only ever scratch the surface, you know, see the tip of the iceberg, you know, and some people go real deep like you have. Um, But one thing is for sure, and that is that Knights is shrouded in mystique, you know, from its gameplay to its story and characters to its some of its unexplained features, you know, that you really don't find out about until you really like just delve into the game. The whole game was inspired by, you know, Cirque du Soleil's Mystere and Carl Jung's theories of dream archetypes, you know, like the animus and anima and the shadow and everything. So the entire game is shrouded in mystique and it's part of that mystique that drew me to it and that also helped characterize the Saturn as a console, you know, because I felt like Mm. the Saturn also was shrouded in mystique because to me, it was this unknown, you know, it was this black box that I really didn't know much about because where the PlayStation was in your face and you knew everything about it, the Saturn was just this kind of like secret that only a few people were in on. 
Oh my goodness, that's so poetic. Yeah, so it's almost as if Knights, and by extension the Saturn in and of itself too, you know, they were that sort of mysterious doorway into the promised land of gaming, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that everyone was kind of aware that, yeah, okay, there's the Saturn, there's Knights, but we'll just, you know, we'll play our PlayStations and our Nintendo 64s because those are known quantities, mm-hmm. right? Whereas the Saturn, you're right, had this, you know, there, there were always promises of, but the Saturn is capable of more. Once the programmers really get down to the metal, you know, you're going to see exponential growth and what can be done with it and so on and so forth. So yes, it definitely had this sort of prestigious, mysterious, um, almost uh, elite, although maybe that's not the right word, but certainly um, like next level type of aura about mm-hmm. it. Right. And I found the same with, uh, with Knights, like, to be honest, one of my first times playing Knights, before I even understood you had to make it to the gazebo to, you know, meld with Knights and, and fly around, I spent a lot of time just sort of running around in the in the levels themselves. And I hadn't seen 3D done quite that way before. You know, like it was colorful and vibrant and there was a ton of detail. And the textures, even though, of course, they were... Um, relatively uh pixelated especially if you look at it today Mm -hmm. it still looked it it looked somehow more real and more solid to Mm -hmm. me than for example mario's surroundings and his levels right Mm -hmm. so you know it it was just there there's just so many dimensions to Mm -hmm. it you know whereas i thought like with a game like mario 64 and don't get me wrong it is a great Mm -hmm. game of course it is um it it felt like there wasn't a whole lot of mystery to it right you could kind of dive into it and you knew pretty, pretty quickly what you were up against, what you had to do and all the rest of it. And, you know, it's not to say it's not a deep game. I think it is, but Knights had that element of mystery and you're right. Like sort of the, the, um, uh, the Cirque du Soleil links and all the sort of psychological links that were behind Mm it and the sensation of flight, which is what one of the things that, uh, uh, the programmers wanted to convey. And Mm -hmm. I think they did a beautiful Mm -hmm. job, especially with the, uh, the 3d control pad. Um, yeah. So those were all sort of, you know, mysterious elements that it just, it gave the game that aura that, that I don't think Mario 64 quite had. And it's funny that we're going to end up talking about Mario 64 a lot here, but we just are like, I, like I say, I can't escape it at this point because they're intertwined. You know, Mario 64 was an, it was an amazing game, just solid game design, Nintendo and Shigeru Miyamoto. It's just solid game design. And like you said, it's a known quantity and it impressed for sure. I mean, the kiosks were packed. Like I said, I I was waiting in a queue of like 20 people to play the game. It was, Mm -hmm. and, um, and the control was amazing as well, but, but like I said, that that first level that I saw of Knights was Mystic Forest. I mean, even the name is Mystic Forest, right? And it looked like a Salvador Dali painting in motion. Mm. You know, it was just off the wall. Now, the thing is, that might not be some people's cup of tea. Like, that might give people a bad taste, you know? Um, but me, I don't know. It just spoke to me, and it just pulled me in. And and it's abs- you're absolutely right about that sense of flight, because I'd never seen a game like that where it actually kind of mirrored that that sense that you get in a dream where you're flying. And I know that um, Takashi Izuka, he was the designer, you know, lead designer. Izuka said in an interview that the original inspiration for the game, like early on, was the idea that a flightless bird could overcome its own inability to fly through hope and determination, uh, taking to the sky and soaring, you know, and that was the idea that um, mm. they'd have like this triumph of this this flightless bird being able to fly. 
And so it kind of does, you know, because the kids, they, they're just human beings, but then they dualize with knights and they're able to, you know, like in twin seeds, they're able to overcome their own uh, psychological and emotional mental issues and, and really um, just take to the sky, uh, both figuratively and literally. You know, I'm, it's funny that you hit on uh, Mystic Forest because that was one of my initial sort of favorite levels. But what really kind of, I don't know, perplexed me was why were there traffic lights all over the place? You know, like, and I understood, yes, okay, it's sort of surrealist and all the rest of it, but it was like, why the traffic lights? I don't understand. And um, sometime later, I was, I tracked down the uh, original soundtrack to Nights into Dreams. Right. And um, the title of the um, track that plays during that level is called Gloom of the NHC. And I thought, what in the world does that mean? You know, like, what is the NHC? It took some digging, but NHC, I found out at the time, stood for Nightopia Highway Corporation. (laughs) And I was like, brilliant, like brilliant. (laughs) And that is not available to find out in game. Like, I literally had to dig out in the real world to make that connection and that just, you know, it's little things like that that make this game absolutely brilliant for me. You know, mm-hmm. you have to dig and you have to go externally and and what have you if you want to. And 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 you find these these neat little connections and and things just suddenly make sense and, and what have you. So, yeah, you know, it's that is part of the magic of nights for me. Definitely. That's crazy. And you know, it, it's funny. One thing that this game has is almost a seemingly infinite amount of little touches, like those little touches mm-hmm. you're talking about right there. Like, you know that every course has a first name, but it also has a second name. Like Spring Valley is the ideal, you know, right. and Mystic Forest is the possibility. Soft Museum, right. of course, is the confusion, which makes perfect sense because Soft Museum is is definitely confusing. You know, you're bouncing off walls. You got like these obstacle courses. It's just crazy. Upside down. Uh, Splash Garden is the affection. Frozen Bell, I think that's your favorite, right? That's the consciousness. Yes. Uh, and then Stick Canyon is the revival. And of course, Twin Seeds is the growth, which uh, represents the growth that they've gone through, you know, through all of this, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just funny that those are little things that you wouldn't know if you didn't pay close attention or read the manual, you know. Yes. But again, it's this game is littered with that kind of stuff. And again, like you said, Gloom of the NHC. Yeah. Yeah. There are other song titles that kind of hint at different things as well, you know. Yes. Yeah. It's so interesting because it is almost like if you look at it as a whole, it is kind of like an abstract, surreal painting of sorts, right? Mm-hmm. Where the mm-hmm. meaning comes from you and you make it what it is. And that strengthens, you know, your connection to it. And yet mm-hmm. it's not a painting, it's a video game. So, you know, I'm not sure that any other game has ever pulled that off as successfully up until that time where mm-hmm. it was, you know, it was abstract. It was, you know, there was some depth to it. It was very interpretive. Um, and, and that could be why it wasn't regarded as highly at the time compared to games like Mario 64, because again, you know, those games were known quantities. Had we had a nice 3D Sonic game, I'm sure it would have sold well, you know, been well reviewed and all the rest of it, but it wouldn't have necessarily potentially had, you know, the sort of impact in my opinion that Knights had. I mean, Knights was so emblematic of the Saturn you know, they were, uh, they were both a little bit misunderstood, you know, people 
were aware of them, but maybe didn't dive into them as much as they could have or what have you. And, Mm -hmm. you know, but speaking of diving in, I'm just curious, like as over the years, as you've been playing this game, have you, you know, come across anything that's surprised you or have you sort of delved into any particular aspects of the game that, you know, deeper than maybe most other people have? Like, how do you play Knights? Yeah. So, you know, of course, this is a great question because, of course, Knights is not all style and no substance. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's got incredible style and some people really that's what draws them in and that's where they stop. That's their relationship to Knights is, you know, I'm not really great at the game, but I love how it looks or I love the music or I love the meaning. Maybe I have emotional attachment to it, you know, so it's great. I fire it up, but, you know, I only get a C rank or whatever. They don't care necessarily but it never reaches that point of greatness, true greatness to them because they don't really necessarily find the the Zen-like mode mm-hmm. that you were talking about because the gameplay itself is so phenomenal. You know, when you really come to grips with it, um, time is something I don't have a lot of, you know, so I don't find myself, you know, spending loads of time just dinking around with the A-life and stuff like that these days. I, I did maybe like 10 years ago, kind of uh, before kids and everything like that, start to, you know, get into the A-Life system like you have, but not nearly on the same level as you have. These days, it's more like I fire it up, um, either start a new game because I just want a clean slate and I want to be able to try to um, to run the game uh, fresh <laughs> you know, without all the Nightopians around kind of bogging the system down <laughs> because that's a thing, actually. You know, you're sadder when you have so many Nightopians in the level it kind of runs a little slow, you know, because the machine is just having a hard time creating all of that AI, I guess, you know. So yeah, I, I typically like to just yep. start a fresh game and see how high I can score. And I'm like a 500,000 scorer. I'm just in that mid-tier area. Like I think I, mm-hmm. I'm probably better than like 50% of the people out there, uh, but I'm certainly not up in that high tier like you were because I, you were on the the Knights leaderboards, right? Number one or number two? Yeah, I was, I was, there was a time many years ago now where, yeah, that was the focus of how I played. And yeah, definitely I was on the leaderboards and I, there was another fellow that him and I sort of alternated back and forth who held sort of top spot in which levels Um, ultimately, but, you know, just like with what you said, you know, life sort of moves on and the, the amount of time that you've got to dedicate to the game diminishes. And so how I enjoy nights today is different than I did back then. So I'm not sure that I would make those leaderboards anymore, I guess, simply because I just wouldn't have the time to, to really kind of get myself into the zone needed to, you know, to really kind of score attack it. Uh, But that isn't the only way that you can play the game. I mean, you know, much like you back when I had a little bit more time, I spent a lot of time messing with the a life and I want to talk about it a little bit because it's, it's one of the most, sort of underrated aspects of this game i find so so what what is a life yeah so as part of the story when clarice and elliot are dreaming they are uh, taken to nitopia and that's sort of the levels that they that they uh fly around in but nitopia is inhabited by these tiny little you know angel looking beings called peons or nitopians essentially right and they are just tiny little sprites that the game keeps track of on an individual basis and they end up living out their lives um, through successive playthroughs of the same levels. So they can fly around, they can make little alterations to the level itself, they can mate and breed, and eventually they also die. 
So all of this actually goes on completely in the background without any direct manipulation or interaction by you, the player. So whether you pay attention to it or not, it just happens. Um, the enemies in the level of in the levels of which there are not too many, to be honest, also serve as predators to these little guys. So they will actually chase them occasionally and eat them. Right. Um, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. in a way, it's sort of like a like a population program, right, where these little beings kind of move around and and they breed, and then there's more of them, and then the the enemies, the um, um, uh, the bad guys in the game, just sort of eat them up and and sort of keep the population in check. The Nightmarin. The Nightmarin, yes, thank you. Yes. And and the neat thing is, so whereas you cannot directly control or impact the uh, Nightopians, what you can do is, depending on how you play the game, you can have a sort of cursory impact on what goes on. So, for example, if you're playing the game, you can completely ignore the enemies and fly around them or what have you and still have a good time and, and life goes on. But you can also focus on eliminating the Nightmare and that will cause your population of Nightopians to rise because all of a sudden there's less predators for them to... Mm-hmm. To look out for you know so it's things like that and when i'm talking about that these guys have you know uh, a minor sort of impact on the game itself i'm talking about like you know they're going to build little snowmen that look like knights or they'll in the um uh frozen bell level or else in the soft museum they will carve little you know statues out of granite or whatever of knights mm-hmm. and leave them uh, lying about so those are the kinds of tiny little impacts that they're going to have um and then the other thing too is they impact the music that plays yes. during the levels. And my goodness, was this ever a brilliant, brilliant feature that got next to no coverage in the press at the time. Cyber Nobody sound. talked about it. Nobody talked about it. And depending on, like, see, the game will keep track of how happy the overall Nitopian population is in every level, right? Mm-hmm. So if they're doing well, if you're not killing them, because you do have the ability to paraloop them and, and kill them off. If you're, if you're treating them nicely, you're not, you know, interfering with them in a negative way, they're going to be happy. And that will change the uh, music uh, in the game. So it'll take on a, you know, more cheery, lively tone. Alternatively, if you don't treat them well, they will become dissatisfied and, you know, the music becomes um, sort of more angry or darker, uh, if you will. Right. And so there's sections to that soundtrack, right? And so, you know, um, there are permutations and combinations that so that, um, you know, ideally no level is replayed with the exact same soundtrack twice because right. so many um, so, so many permutations and i'm not sure that that has ever been replicated before to this uh you know in, in that way maybe there are instances but i'm certainly not aware of them i mean games games use midi for sure you know they use different versions of uh, you know basically midi triggered uh instruments you know and that's mm-hmm. a pretty typical thing in, in the game industry but definitely not like this. No, I, I, I mean, this was really a stroke of genius. And of course, so the game utilizes a, a MIDI instrument library called Cybersound. Mm. Uh, and the music was, um, lead composer was Tomoko Sasaki, along with uh, Naofumi Hataya and Fumie Kumitani. I hope I'm not butchering that. Um, but they did amazing music for this game. Just phenomenal. A lot of the sounds that they were able to use with Cybersound, you know, just sound excellent and like you said, it's very dynamic and we get to play with that in Christmas nights, right? As a present, oh, yeah. you know, we get to open it up 
and uh, what is it called? The music box where you really get to kind of see how the game it controls the music dynamically. But that's not something we would know right off the bat. And it's something that that kind of just dawned on me subtly, you know, as I was playing the game and I was like, oh, wait, the music is different, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, that's mm-hmm. crazy, you know. And then, of course, I read the manual. I find out that it's kind of tied to the A-life, you know, to whether the Nitopians are happy or sad or uh, moody. Yeah. But yep. it's always cute when you're when you're flying by and you see a little Nitopian singing a song, you know. Mm. So there's a lot of little things. Can you tell me, since we're still on Nitopians, um, about the King Pian? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so again, so the A-Life itself wasn't overly covered in, you know, the press at the time. And so most folks ignored it. But if you took an active interest, you could have some influence on the Pian population. Now, there was something neat I, I saw in Christmas Nights which kind of made me think, huh, maybe there's more to this A-Life than, than I initially sort of realized. So one of the presents you can open in Christmas nights allows you to sort of check on your, your Nitopian population. Mm-hmm. And it kind of displays them all and it gives you a number. You have, you know, so many uh, uh, Nitopians in your uh, dream. But then it had a second column for Meepians. And I thought, well, what the heck is that? And I never had any. It always said zero. So... Um, I later discovered that there are two ways, of course, that you can kill a nightmare and you can paraloop them, in which case they just sort of vanish into into a little vortex and they're gone. Or you can drill dash them and that kind of curls them up into a little ball and it sends them flying and they bounce around the level for a little bit and then they kind of sit there exhausted and then they vanish. But while they're bouncing around, if they happen to strike a Nitopian, it can produce a mating effect and then an egg is created. And once that egg hatches, the Nitopian that results from um, from the situation has some characteristic of a of a Nitopian and some of the Nightmarin, and so you get this wonderful sort of uh, collection of you know creatures that are half Nightmarin and half Nitopian, and you can fill your level with them too, and it's it's such a cool thing. Anyways. The ultimate sort of um, end to this little experiment is if you have two um, of these mutant Nitopians, these Meepians breed, and they have opposing features, um, the child will inherit one of the two parent, like sets of features from both parents, right? You could either create a full Nightmarin, which you don't want, or the opposite of that, you can create a um, full Nitopian again. And that Nitopian would become a King Pian. And so he would look just like a Nitopian, but he would be wearing a nice golden crown. And this is a dude on a mission. So over the next four, five, six playthroughs of that level, you're going to notice him kind of flying around and he's going to be picking up pieces of you know, dirt and stone and whatever. And he's going to be hucking them. And you can't really see where he's throwing the, um, this stuff. But as you play along, you're going to find that he is building a castle, like a floating yes. paradise castle, right? Yeah. And over the playthroughs, he ultimately builds this giant floating, weird-looking castle that then becomes part of your level and stays in your memory for as long as you've got you know, that particular file. Right. And then after a few more sort of playthroughs, he, he then vanishes and he, he departs nobody knew about this stuff, Dave. And I remember reading about it, you know, in obscure places on the internet years later. And I thought, 
whatever if this was even real like you know people would know about it it would be way like it's just it's nonsense but i decided to give it a try and then you know the day came where i finally did successfully breed a king peon my goodness what a treat that was to know that like <laughs> this is in the game you know this is a high selling saturn game mm-hmm. that has been super highly publicized you know sonic team yuji naka all the rest of it and nobody knew about this like what is going on and so yeah so it can be done it is it is marvelously difficult it is delicious when it's completed and you just wish that other people knew about it it's it's just fantastic sonic um, team I'll add one last thing on this topic yeah um years and years and years later i saw that in the uh, in the actual museums in soft museum like if you look at how they are they're laying on their sides these museums like you Mm -hmm. when you're flying through you see the ceiling Mm -hmm. in the background right and you've got the museum walls sort of below you there are um you know really sort of pixelated um paintings in the museum in the soft museum and in several places the paintings are that of the king peon's castle and it was like another what another sort of moment where my goodness gracious (laughs) right so so this is what i'm talking about how this game just kind of it will go as deep as you want it to because Mm -hmm. you could play this game for decades without being even aware of any of this stuff and you'll still have a good time with the game right it's Mm -hmm. just it's one of those features it's one of those rabbit holes that that you can certainly go down yeah it this is sonic team it's classic sonic team you know how they love to tuck little secrets away in their games and not not necessarily push it on you it's like if you never discover it oh well you know but you know even and and i wouldn't say they did it as much with burning rangers but it's there to a a certain extent with the email system and everything and little messages that are kind of tucked away it's just one of those things that yuji naka would do he'd be like okay well i'm trying to develop this new ai system and of course it would inform the chow garden in Sonic Adventure on the Dreamcast, right? You know, so that would be the more, I guess, realized and fully fleshed out version of what started on the Saturn. But it's just crazy that the Saturn was so forward thinking and and just so cutting edge with that kind of stuff, you know, lots of stuff like that happening on the Saturn and not necessarily appreciated or or even known about by many people. But it's like for those of us who who were lucky enough to take the time and dig in, we found so much more playability and so much more enjoyment out of these games. Mm-hmm. Did you ever try to push the game beyond boundaries that maybe the um, programmers didn't initially consider? Like, I wonder how deep you got with the game. That's an abstract question. <laughs> I don't, like, I mean, I've beat it several times and I've played around with the A-Life system to a degree. I've tried every option, every little feature that I could get my hands on. You know, I mean, the game came with stuff that you know, it came with an anamorphic widescreen mode. You could actually, mm-hmm. if you had a 16 by 9, uh, probably plasma back then, or you were lucky enough to have one of those 16 by 9 CRTs, you know, you could pump this thing through there, put it in anamorphic widescreen mode, and it basically renders the game in it like a squished mode, but then stretches it out, and it works. Like, it, it, it looks great. It's a widescreen mode where you have a little bit more information on both sides if you can experience that i I definitely think you know folks should try that there was also a there was a mode where you could once you've beaten it you could change the bosses Mm -hmm. you know for each level Uh, if you wanted to basically get practice with a certain boss you know um, there was a two-player mode with Riala, which was fun once you once you beat the game and you could do acrobatics and kind of try to paraloop each other wasn't it wasn't like that great of a mode but it was fun you know to do with my brother 
and stuff. Is that the kind yeah. of stuff you're talking about? Or are you talking about like trying to break the game? No, 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 not break the game. I just, you know, like, so yes, everything that you said, I would agree with, of course. I'm thinking like, for example, I wondered um, and tried, what would happen if you never entered the idea palace to dualize with knights right. like what if you decided to just kind of run around the level like what would happen and you know of course after a certain time um that egg alarm clock sort of starts chasing you and right. whatever and if it catches you then it's game over because you know the the kid wakes up from the dream and and that's it but i thought okay i'm gonna see whether i can just continuously outrun this this egg clock because it does get faster and faster after a while and it's just relentless um and I did. I just kept outrunning it and, you know, kind of just kept messing around the level. And at the 20 minute mark, because I timed this because I needed to know, <laughs> you just wake up. So the clock doesn't even need to get you. You have a 20 minute limit to get into the idea palace and dualize with knights. Otherwise, you just wake up. And so it's another one of those things where who out there in their right minds is going to spend 20 minutes of their day <laughs> Trying to outrun a Peter you know an alarm clock <laughs> egg, <laughs> but that was me. Yeah. So I had to find out, and so yes, yeah, so twenty minutes. If you can outrun that clock for twenty minutes, you will just wake up and sort of. And it's funny the way it works because everything just starts fading to white. So the crack of dawn comes, and you know Claire Sorelliot, whoever wakes up, and then that's it. It's just just says game over. Right. So you know it, it was, so it's little things like that that. You know, I pushed that game to try to discover everything that I possibly could. You know, another example would be in Splash Garden, especially, there are a lot of bumpers that if you bump them, you get, I don't know, six or seven of the uh, blue chips. Mm -hmm. You bump them a second time and you get like six or seven stars. You bump them again, you only get like three stars. And then every other time you bump them after that, you just get one single solitary star. Right. Obviously, so that you don't just kind of stand there and spam the, you know, the bumpers and, and keep getting points. So that's good. But of course, I had to stand there and spam these damn things over and over and over. Only to learn that on the 256th time, it all resets and you get your your uh your blue chips and then your mini stars and all the rest of Peter, it and that you have too much time yeah. on your hands <laughs> yeah you know well there was a time where i had that much time on my hands and you know it's just oh my god you know, that is that's insane i i have to say you are tenacious <laughs> so i'll tell you though if there is any other uh podcast that you know where i could talk about doing this kind of stuff yeah. with knights like this yeah this is my chance to get this out, darn it. Tell the world. No, um, that is insane. Okay, so there are games that I've done that kind of stuff with. But yeah, no, I'm, I mean, with Knights, I really spent more time with like the linking, you know, chaining links and stuff mm -hmm. like that, which is really where the, the Zen gets you, you know. Um, I think we're so excited about this topic that we like forgot to like, tell people what nights is <laughs> like sure. like from the beginning like it's this game where you're basically to you're either mm. elliot edwards or Clarice sinclair so a boy or a girl they're both struggling with kind of like emotional issues in their life you know they're struggling with anxiety um about certain things like Clarice, she wants to try out for a, a concert right uh singing role Elliot is, he wants to be basketballer and he's wants to be great, you know, but there are these guys that on the court that kind of make him feel terrible about himself. Um, and they like trash talk him or, you know, they, 
steal the ball from him. You know, they're just bullies. And so he has anxiety about bullies, you know, and Claris has anxiety about uh, Mm -hmm. bullies in the director's chair, you know, thinking that she's not good enough or whatever. Basically, they doubt themselves, you know. So you're these kids and you go to sleep, you dream, you know, and that's what we all do. We dream. And a lot of us, you know, this is the idea that when we sleep, we dream and, and that kind of helps us struggle or wrestle with our issues, you know, that we're having in our lives, you know, that kind of, it's almost like uh, therapy, you know, dream is dreams are a form of therapy. And, and that's what these kids do when they dream, except they, um, they meet with a character in their dreams called Knights. And Knights is a nightmare. And he's actually one of the henchmen or like the lead henchman uh, appointed by wise man, the wicked, right? Wise man, the wicked is the, is the head honcho nightmare boss, you know, and he uh, wants to take over the world of dreams essentially. And under him are two nightmare that he created. You got knights and then you got Riala. And I think Riala is, is a dude who's really loyal to wise man. And then Knights is kind of like, doesn't want to be told what to do. And so he's a little mischievous and he represents that kind of uh, free spirit, free spirit. Yeah, exactly. So he, you know, he, she, cause it's genderless, you know, Knights is genderless. Um, I think that he was referred to as a, he in some of the localized materials, but that could have just been the localization. Um, but Knights isn't supposed to have a gender. So um, the kids dualize with, Knights, <laughs> we'll just say knights from here on. They dualize with knights, which is basically to become one with knights. And they um, are able to then fly, you know, because they start off in foot, on foot, um, which is one of the reasons why I think people off would back then kind of compare this to like a 3D platformer, but it seemed kind of janky, you know, because the on foot sections were really not where this game shines. Those were actual true 3D platforming you know, where you could turn around and everything like that. And, but then of course, when you dualize with knights, you, you become this flying jester or harlequin, I guess. Uh, and you're able to fly on a 2d two dimensional track, right. Around like a cylinder, the levels are all kind of cylindrical, right. Except for when they go into like the first person. Yeah. So once you are knights, you can fly. And like you said, the game changes from being like a fully open 3d, environment to an on rails 3d looking but essentially 2d um track and it is circular so whether they're they're perfectly oval or whether they take it more of a spaghetti route through the level they are they are sort of circular and so they're endless mm-hmm. and scattered throughout this um this track are these blue chips and the goal is to collect 20 of them and then deposit them um, into an idea capture, which is this like giant sort of transparent mushroom looking type thing mm-hmm. that's more on the track. And that idea capture holds one of the five ideas that were stolen from the kids. They're all different colors and they represent different attributes such as courage or, you know, honor or whatever. So wait, let me stop you there. So the kids, when they dream, they start out with having all of those, those four uh, right. orbs, right? Um, so they have red, which is courage. Do you know what the other ones are? Green, um, blue, and then yellow. Oh, and there's a white one. Okay, so the red one is the one that they hang on to at all times. The nightmare and can't steal those, and those are courage. The other four are white, which is purity. Green, which represents wisdom. Yellow, which represents hope, and blue, which represents intelligence. 
So, you know, the Nightmare and steal all of these idea energies from the kids except the red one. They cannot get the red one. And the red one is courage. Mm-hmm. And that's what the kids start out with. They start out with the courage to go and find knights and dualize with them. And then they're able to fly around. So by collecting these blue chips and then ultimately depositing them, so bringing them into the idea capture, once it's got 20 blue chips, the idea capture is overloaded, it blows up, and and Knights is able to then pick up that idea energy. Once they've done all five tracks and they've got all five idea uh, energies, they're able to progress to the, uh, the boss of the level. Mm-hmm. But the neat thing about the game is once you've got your idea energy... Um, you don't necessarily immediately need to return to the idea palace to begin the next um, the next track. You can fly around until you run out of time because you start off with roughly 120 seconds, roughly two minutes of time to sort of fly around and um, collect right. things and pass through rings and create links. And essentially, once you you pick up an item, you've got roughly a second, second and a half, we'll say, to grab a second item, and then that'll create a link. And the more items you capture in succession, the more items you grab or rings that you pass through, then your link counter will grow. And then that ultimately equals points, right? And this game, you know, played at its purest um, is a score attack game. Mm -hmm. Once you have the idea uh, rescued from the idea Mm -hmm. capture, any points that you pick up are doubled. They're worth twice as much. And so you can fly around this level. The idea is to fly around... Um, these circular paths as often as possible within the time limit um, and collect as many items and get as many links as possible to get the highest score that you can. You have to be careful because once the timer hits zero, then Knights vanishes and either Claris or Elliot sort of falls back down. They lose all of their chips. They lose all of their points and you have to, you know, trek back to the idea palace on foot. So that's kind of the mechanics of the game and the story behind it and how it works. Anything you want to add to that, Dave? Well, no, it's just, you know, I felt like it was important to kind of give people uh, maybe who have never really played this game before, or maybe it's been a really long time, you know, that we should just kind of, (laughs) because we just went blaze right past that. And I admit it's because I'm so excited about all the other little idiosyncrasies and little secrets that the game holds. But yeah, essentially that's where the beauty of this game lies is, is in that uh, ability to continue flying through the level and just kind of going over the palace or the gazebo, you know, it's like a little gazebo looking thing. You go over it, completely avoid it um, and just do the course as many times as you can trying just to eke out another go around on the course before your time runs out and get your butt back to the gazebo right in the nick of time. That's when you really start multiplying your score, you know, and, and of course flying through those rings and, and getting the link, you know, you have this link that just continues to grow and grow. And if you're able to go fast enough and navigate the course in a perfect line, almost like a race car navigates a a race car course, you know, there is a perfect line through this course. Maybe there's a couple of them and different people play the game differently. But the point is there is an optimal line that you can take where you can go from one orange ring of orbs to the next one, which may be several paces off, you know, and if you can't get there fast enough, you lose your link and you start all over again. That's where you start getting the bug for like 
wanting to yeah. figure out how you can keep that link going because you know that it's possible. You know that this this concept of an infinite link is, is out there and, and trying to figure out how to make it happen. You know, sometimes uh, people find that running the courses backwards actually works better, you know, and that's the thing. The game lets you do that. You know, they, it lets you run the course backwards if you want uh, to be able to get those links up. But that's what takes you from being like a, a C rank or a B rank player to being an A rank player pretty quickly. If you, if you really focus on uh, getting many of those gold chips and, and flying through and getting your link up and then just cashing everything in at the last second, it's almost hard not to get an A, right? Yes, exactly. And there's where the addictive quality of the game comes from, right? Because you're just one link away from a better score. You're just one slight change away from a better overall run. And, you know, it's all on you. You have to figure out this optimal path. It's, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not always clear what the optimal path will be. Sometimes the game makes it obvious in some spaces, especially in the early levels. But um, ultimately, there's different things that you can do. You know, do you pass through uh, the uh, orange rings, or do you maybe do a pair loop around a group of blue chips? You know, which is faster to complete, which will give you more time to do another loop, like which will mm -hmm. give you more items that you've picked up for a higher score. Um, there's also these um, weird little sort of almost like party favor type things that you can pick up and they've got a number attached to them. And if you are able to pick them up and um, pass through enough um, orange rings or collect enough items to create a link equal to or greater than that little number, then they'll pop and then you'll get like an extra thousand point bonus and something right. a little bit out of the way. Right. So, mm -hmm. so again, like, do you alter your flight path to maybe pick them up and hopefully get enough links to get that thousand point prize at the end? Or do you ignore them completely? So there's, there's all these little nuances and factors and what have you that, that make, um, the game have so many different ways to sort of play it and complete it, you know, and right. to this day, there aren't necessarily ironclad paths that I personally take, you know, right. Lock, stock and barrel through the levels. It changes, you know, and it, and that's the genius of the game, really. I mean, um, it's a game that you can play an infinite number of ways, you know, and mm -hmm. you know, it's funny, like you couple that with, this whole a life that's going on in the background and the fact that each time you play the music might be a little bit different. Like it really does a great job of, you know, being a unique experience each and every time while at the same time being familiar and comfortable to you if you've played it long enough. So absolutely. I mean, you could think to yourself that you have figured it out, that you have the optimal path and then you go, uh, on, uh, you go online, you go to YouTube or something like that. And you're checking out some of these other people's runs and it just blows my mind to see some people think so outside the box differently than I do. And I'm like, oh my God, this guy is running this level completely different than I would and doing twice as good, you know, like racking up the multipliers yeah. way more than me. And I'm just like, I gotta, I gotta start over. I gotta like rethink my whole way of approaching this game, you know? So yeah. that's, that's one of the wonderful things about it, you know? Yeah, definitely. And to this day, you know, it's possible to watch uh, video playthroughs of different people. And, and you're right, they run levels entirely differently. And you can pick out either little spots or little sections, and then your game changes as a result. So, you know, it, it's it's an experience. And, you know, if anything, I could maybe as a criticism, I could level against this game is it takes time 
to get to that level of gaming. You know, you can sit down and have a 10 minute session and have a great time, but you've also got to invest some sort of continuity to get to that sort of um, higher level of, um, of gaming. Yeah. If that makes sense. Of course. I mean, that's my criticism and maybe they thought they were being clever or maybe they were just like, Oh, well, this is going to be an inside thing, you know, that people have to figure out to be a part of the club, you know, but I just don't feel like they did a good enough job explaining what's pretty simple. You know, like I've done videos where I've explained how nights works and how you're supposed to play it. I know you have too. And people Mm -hmm. immediately are like, Oh, well that makes sense. You know, I've been playing this game wrong this whole time. And you know, it's kind of like when you sit down to a board game with some friends and it's a brand new game. You've never played it before. There's like all these rules and things you have to come to grips with before you can really start to enjoy the game. You know, like Settlers of Catan or something. You know, take any game that's like somewhat involved, you know, and has like several uh, mechanics going on. You know, it can be daunting. It can be a little intimidating. Um, and you might not even get the most out of the game at first until you really dig in and you, and you figure out what the strategy and the long term is. So a lot of people, they kind of have like a, a glancing experience with nights where it's just the sounds, the colors, the the control, uh, which we can talk about in a minute, all that that's just kind of being thrown in their face because it's, it's just a very sensory game, you know. And then, of course, I won't say winning, but like completing the game, it's rather short, you know. Um, and doing it with C's, you know, mm-hmm. or B's and, and they come away with an experience like, oh, yeah, it was it was short. Um, it was good. It was different than anything I've ever played, um, but it wasn't great, you know, or I just don't like it. But again, it's just it's holding back because even if you read the manual, it's quite confusing. <laughs> I, I mean, 16 yep. year old me yep. read the manual and I didn't get a lot of this until later. It's just crazy. But it is, you know, yep. essentially um if you guys want to, I rec- highly recommend people go check out on the Shiro's channel, uh, N- Peter's Knight's Explanation. You know, he did a very good job explaining the game. And and, um, and I think that if folks follow those simple you know, ideas, they can definitely do really well. I mean, they can immediately double their score, you know, overnight uh, just by following the simple method of playing the game. I mean, I guess in that sense, Knight's is kind of like playing chess, right? Mm-hmm. The, the more you do it, the more you will learn about yourself as a player, about different strategies that you can use. And there is an infinite way, infinite number of ways to play the game, much like there is an infinite number of ways that a game of chess could unfold. So, right. but, but it isn't like checkers, which you can learn in three seconds. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it, it does have a level of complexity. And I wonder too, if at the time that the game released in 96, and especially in comparison to its contemporaries, if it was just 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 one tiny little bit too complicated for a lot of folks, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because, like you said, it's not like once you wa- watch somebody explain it or or kind of show you in a video, like it's pretty simple to get. But it's maybe just one. It's maybe just a tiny little bit too much of a leap to make when you're starting from zero. Yeah, if that makes sense. There's so much that's abstract about the game. And honestly, in the pre YouTube era, it was just it's so much easier with YouTube, you know, now where you can just get on the Internet or the Internet for that matter. You know, it was in its yeah. infancy. Uh, yeah. You know, Web pages were just like little pages with image maps. You know, it was just 
sales. It was so crude back then. Most of your tips you'd get from magazines in the grocery store or something like that, or on the newsstand. Um, that, that was my brother and I, you know, just like reading the tips in the back of the magazines, trying to figure out how to conquer some of these games. And a lot of the times these concepts just didn't make that much sense unless you could see them in motion. And once you see examples of other people playing the game at a high level, all of a sudden it makes a lot of sense. You're like, okay, that's like a completely different way to play this game. And I would say that once you get to the high levels of play, it's a lot like a racing game because you do hit a wall. There is a, there is a wall where it's basically like you're racing yourself at this point. You're racing your own best times, trying to figure out how you can just eke out a tiny little bit more, you know, how you can just, you know, go from 800,000 to 900,000. The difference between going from like 200,000 to 400,000 as a score is not that big of a difference that you can do that fairly easily, but going from like 800,000 to 900,000, just that 100, it's so tough because at that point you're, you're already pushing yourself beyond what most people are capable of. And now it's just doing it over and over again and kind of zoning out, you know, getting that Zen state, you know, where you're just getting the links perfectly. And of course, you know, you make a mistake and you're just like, well, that's that run right there shot. I might as well start over, you know, just like Formula One or something, you know, you, you take the wrong turn and you're up against, uh, you're up against an opponent who makes no mistakes. You have to start over because you know that you're, you're playing at that level, you know? You know, I have to admit, I got to a point where um, when you complete a full run and you defeat a boss, um, you know, it'll, it'll display your rank and your final score. And it'll also tell you um, how many times you've played through that level. And so it'll say the first time you finished it, it'll say it was your first night, then mm-hmm. your second night and so on and so forth. I got to the point where my save file, no matter what the level was, I was in the thousands of nights. And those are completed (laughs) levels. So, you know, if you happen to, you know, stop the game or reset it or whatever, because you made some kind of mistake that that doesn't record Mm -hmm. it as a complete playthrough. So I was, Mm -hmm. you know, the thousands of completed nights because it just, this game had me hooked so, uh, so strongly and so deeply, but, you know, it's like you said, it does ultimately become, um, a game of just the tiniest incremental gains, right? Mm-hmm, Where picking mm-hmm. up one extra chip makes the difference between whether you set a high score or not. And you are mm-hmm. ultimately now at this point competing against yourself when you're at that high level. But I just want to highlight, you know, I'm sure you, you're obviously aware of this too, but for folks who may be listening, this isn't the only way to play the game. You don't have to be... No. You know, some master score or whatever. Like it is exciting. And I think that's where the adrenaline rush comes from. That's where the addictive mm-hmm. factor comes from because you know you could do a little bit better next time. And it isn't the game. It's you. It's all on you to do better. You know, like there are mm-hmm. no cheap sort of deaths. There are no, you know, r- when you run out of time, it's because you miscalculated as opposed to anything else, mm-hmm. you know? So, right. so you are competing against yourself, but it, you know, it doesn't have to be this mad rush of a game, you could take your time and enjoy it for what it is, you know, pay more attention to the A life or maybe sort of, you know, take odd paths um, up or down just to see what you can discover um, in the levels. And so, you know, it, it isn't, it is primarily a score attack game, but it isn't exclusively a score attack game. Maybe that's like why they didn't tell you necessarily how to play. You know, they gave you some very simple guidelines, but then it's like, 
we're going to leave the rest up to you to decide, you know, but, but again, every time the level ends and you get that C rank, it may leave you wondering like, what have I left on the table, you know? Mm -hmm. And then you go find that out for yourself, you know, but for the time being, it's like, you can really just do it however you want to, you know, because it's a dream, right? After all, mm. um, it's, it's crazy. It, it, it is really crazy. And actually the, the, the fact that you mentioned that, I guess may, it makes more sense to me, you know? And I think that's the, the thing is there's a different, we both love this game so much. And I think we have a lot in common as Saturn fans, but I openly admit that you're on another level than I am because of the amount of probably just the amount of time you've spent and how much dedication you put into your score attack. Like I said, I'm 400 to 500,000 score and you've, I think, broken the million, right? Yeah. So that that's, yeah. it's like night and day really. But that's the thing is you don't really, like Peter said, have to be playing on that level to appreciate the game just as much, you know, because there are so many aspects to this game and how you can appreciate it, you know? Look, um, let me just say it is just as difficult to successfully create a king pian as it is to score a million points in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, dedicating the time and managing your, your Nitopian population and all the rest of it, that's going to take time. That's going to take multiple successive playthroughs and it's a completely different Avenue, you know, and how to, how to play the game. So, you know, you, you can be a score demon for sure, or you can, right. you know, do the, the Nitopian population and do your, your King Pian, or there's, there's other ways that you can do it too. Like I said, you could literally explore those levels, some of them more so than others, I guess, but some of them have mm -hmm. things to see and do that only Claris or Elliot could see Knights Knights doesn't, you know, cross that path. So, right. So they're just, you know, it's, there's, a, there's different ways to, um, to, uh, to enjoy the game. And there is no right way in particular. So, you know, when you said that I'm on a different level, I just want to make clear to people, it, it's not to say that I'm at a higher level or a better level. I'm literally just right. on a different level. You know what I mean? And there is no right level or whatever. So, you know, don't be intimidated by, oh, I can only get a B score or whatever. Like, don't let that no. stop you. There, there's, there's so many ways to enjoy this game. I just think that your level is the product of the amount of time that you've put into it. Okay. So for yeah. as much time and effort as you put into this game, you'll reap rewards, you know, and it's one of those games that keeps giving and you keep getting more out of it, the more you put into it. Um, and that's the thing I love about it. Basically, you know, I, I will say there is maybe arguably one right way to play this game. And that is with something called the 3d control pad. Mm. Um, now some people are going to disagree with me because I actually know a few folks out there who actually play this with the digital, the, the original digital pad and they, they do quite well, you know, they, they score quite high with the D pad, which to me is insane. My hat's off to you. But so there's this thing called the 3d control pad that is also colloquially called the Knights controller, um, because it was created specifically for this game. Do you want to talk a little bit about that controller? We did in the hardware, we, we kind of covered it in our hardware memories, yeah. but I think that we should mention how this controller works and, and what it provides to this game, you know, specifically. So definitely. So there's something I want to just quickly mention related to the Sonic games. Mm. One of the things that made them so accessible to me was that really you were using your directional pad and one single button. Mm -hmm. That's all there was to this game, you know, and Knights is the exact same. It is the directional pad and one button. So whether you're Claris or Elliot running around, you know, you're using your direction to move your character and then your one button is your jump button and that's it. Or as Knights, 
you're flying around and that's your directional pad uh, button. And then your one button is to drill dash. That's it. So it's a very simple control scheme. But that said, the 3D controller is like this UFO shaped pad and it's got a trackball sort of thumb type uh, pad. Mm -hmm. And it just makes Knight's movements very, very smooth so that Knights can execute turns and sort of graceful, you know, movements that are, you know, inherently much stiffer with a digital eight directional input uh, pad, right? So you get a lot more fluidity with Knights. And, you know, the fact that it was called the uh, 3D control pad, I think that's just a product of the era where 3D was just the buzzword and you called anything and everything 3D, even if it wasn't really necessarily 3D, Mm -hmm. because that's had to do right but it is a sort of um analog thumb uh thumb pad that is sort of like a trackball almost and 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 yeah it just enables knights to just have an incredible range of uh motion so i've played the game both ways of course to me there's no comparison in terms of feel it has to be played with the 3d control pad it's you know the pad was designed for it mm-hmm. um the pad does have both a traditional um like directional um, uh, stick as well as the analog pad. And you can switch between the two modes, but for Knights really, you know, that 3d control pad is ideal to me. You just, you want to play with it um, with the 3d pad to get that sort of fluid sensation of flight and movement and acrobatics. And again, now we're drawing back to that link mm. with the uh, Cirque du Soleil, the, the mystere, right? So, yes. uh, you know, that fluidity and everything. So, um, it to me makes a, a, a an incredible difference. It's extremely precise too. Yes, one to one. This is where I would argue that it's even better than Mario sixty four. Like, and I mean, mm. I was very impressed with the Trident control. Like, I didn't like the Trident, okay, but I was very impressed with the analog input on the sixty four when I first picked it up, and and I played the sixty four first. Like, I I played that kiosk. I got to feel that that analog controller moving Mario doing the jumps and stuff like that. And it was very responsive, but I, I, I kid you not like when you're just touching that 3d nub on the 3d control pad or the, the multi-controller, just even the tiniest bit Knights responds immediately, like in unison with what your thumb is doing. It's, it's mm-hmm. just different. And it is different because it's a completely t- different technology. Kenji Tosaki did an interview. He's the creator of this controller and like it, each controller has a CPU in it that interprets uh, input as like a complicated curve. And um, the input is is like a magnetic sensor. It's like four different little magnetic sensors, north, uh, south, east, and west. And um, it's able to interpret that really intelligently and put out just the most precise control. Um, no other controllers really use this, these kind of like hall sensors. Sega did it with the, the 3D control pad, and then mm-hmm. they did it with the Dreamcast controllers on the, on the analog. And it's just, it's an insane technology. It's kind of hard to develop. You know, he, he said it would probably be next to impossible for us to have like a new 3D control pad uh, these days, you know, like a, a re, redux, you know, because of that technology just being, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hard to duplicate at this point. But yeah, like you said, it just, it was amazing. And um, 
I think Steven Spielberg, fun fact, was like the first guy outside of the internal team to test it. So it kind of got another colloquial name, the Spielberg controller, because he approved of it. You know, uh, he was getting it. He was getting into video games, I guess, at that yeah, point, yeah. you know, thinking about uh, doing, you know, Hollywood tie ins and stuff like that. And so, yeah, they had him kind of uh, test it out. But yeah, definitely. I I think that it's just phenomenal. And that's the thing I will say. You can still play the game with the digital pad. But you will hit a wall. Like even if you score high, you can only do so much with the digital pad. It's fighting you the whole way, you know? And I think even the developers noticed that because that was the whole impetus for creating the 3D control pad. Um, In interviews, they said, you know, they they noticed that they were just having a really hard time controlling knights as precisely as they wanted to be able to. And that's why they developed the 3D control pad in the first place. And it just made all the difference, you know? You know, it's funny because so Sega sold it as both a standalone game as well as, you know, the combo where you get the game as well as the uh, the control pad. But at the time, I wonder how many folks rented nights to see if they would like it or mm-hmm. not, you know, and typically when you rented it, you just got the game disc. You didn't get the control pad as well. So I wonder if that maybe sort of played a part in, um, you know, the game not getting as much you know, retail traction as, as it maybe could have. Sure. I mean, that's say of course, but um, I remember my first few times with Knights was with the digital pad because I just didn't have the 3d controller. Right. Um, and it does play magnificently, you know, orders of magnitude more intuitively with that 3d pad for sure. But you were still impressed with it. Uh, having played it with the D pad. Um, I was, yes. Um, the on foot sections when you're playing as either of the kids were easier to manage because it was just more like that was more intuitive, but the, the flying sections with knights seemed a little bit stiff Mm -hmm. with the digital pad. I don't know if that was your experience too. Well, you know, here's the funny thing that I will say, I have a really hard time, uh, with the ribbon combos. (laughs) Okay. Cause, Mm. um, one trick that people like to do is just fly up to the ceiling and spam the shoulder buttons, you know, and then that will force the game to think that you're doing all these combos, right? Now, if you play the game normally and you're just doing normal ribbon combos in midair, you know, acrobatics, right? Somersaults and stuff like that. Then the 3D control bat is fine. Those, those, those triggers that are technically analog triggers, they're fine. But when you're trying to do that, that wall exploit, which is allowed in competitive play where you, you fly up to the ceiling and you just spam the buttons. I actually can do that better with the digital shoulder buttons, you know, than I can with the analog one. So it's ironic because I want to play the game with the analog controller, but I'm never able to do very well when it comes to the ribbon portions. And that's actually one of the biggest things that's holding my, my high score back is, you know, being able to score like a dreamy, you know, it's never happened for me unless it was an accident, you know? No, that's true. So, you know, one of the, the neat things with this game is back in the sort of early 2000s, mid 2000s, I joined a a forum called scoreattack.net. They're not online anymore. Um, and that's where the leaderboards were. And, you know, there was a lot of discussion about strategy and how to get the highest scores possible and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time at least as to the best of my knowledge, we weren't aware of the fact that you could sort of spam that 
that stunt ribbon. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, uh, you know, me and a couple of uh, of the other competitors, we sort of figured out that, hey, you know, look at this, we could do this. And and we learned to spam that um, that that stunt ribbon, and it just gives you unbelievably massive points. You know, that is the only way that folks are able to break that million point barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, in retrospect, I almost wish that that feature had been either suppressed or taken out because, like it, it inflates your scores to such a tremendous extent that it almost makes the rest of your run inconsequential. And that's right. That's maybe not, not right. And, you know, it, it, it makes you wonder whether this was an unintended uh, effect that um, starting a stunt and then sort of having knights hit a, a ceiling or a wall or whatever, and then canceling the rest of that stunt animation, but still recording the, uh, the score from it, if it was an unintended um, effect, because in Christmas nights, the follow-up disc that came out a few months after Nights into Dreams, uh, the effect is gone. So you can no longer spam the, uh, the stunt ribbon to get right. those massive, massive scores. Right. Exactly. So, um, and on that topic, I just want to maybe switch gears a little bit and jump into Christmas nights. If we could. Sure. Um, Dave, I've got a pretty crazy story about uh, Christmas Nights, and I think it was actually uh, featured in one of our very, very early uh, podcasts when I was not yet a member of our group. But I'm just curious, how did you come across Christmas Nights? Um, You know, I remember seeing it in Blockbuster, I think. Uh, It was like, uh, either you got it for like renting a couple Saturn games, or I don't remember what the requirements were to get it, but it was at the register, you know, and it was kind of like a free giveaway with a caveat, you know, or something. But I didn't get it until later. You know, I think um, I think I probably burned Christmas nights before I ever got an actual copy of it. And then, of course, when I was collecting Saturn games, I, I caught up and, and got a copy of it. But yeah, I think I played a burned copy first. Wow. OK. But I was aware of it back in the day. I just never picked it up. Yes. So um, I have to admit that the magazines at the time did a pretty good job of letting us know that it existed and it was out there. Um, mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, like it was cover mounted on one of the issues of Next Generation magazine. I, I could be wrong now. My memory could be wonky there, but, but yeah, you, you couldn't buy it per se, but there were ways of obtaining it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, you know, back then I was a, a pretty big Knights fan already and I needed to have this game for a number of reasons. And I had all kinds of trouble locating it. Uh, couldn't find a copy. I remember, um, at work at the time, one of my coworkers mentioned, oh, you know, he had a buddy out in Vancouver or whatever, and he could, he's got a copy of the game. He'd be happy to send it out to, uh, to him to give to me and all he needed was $50 <laughs> and I, I was you know I was young I was naive and I I needed Christmas nights so I agreed and I gave the fellow 50 bucks of course all he wanted that $50 for was to get some drugs you know so you can have his next hit of drug oh god <laughs> and you know and so I kept but I was persistent I was like Where's the game? Where, where's Christmas nights as your friend sent it to you? And, you know, at first it was like, oh, you know, he didn't send it yet. I'll, I'll bug him. He'll send it. And after a week or two, it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. He said it's in the mail, but I, I was persistent. I didn't let him 
let him off the hook. And eventually he was like, yeah, I did. I, I got it. I got it. But, but I dropped it and it cracked. Like it was just, you know, Oh my God. It was just total and complete nonsense. You and poor it, guy. You know, it was, it was a life lesson for me because he did drop it uh, and it cracked, but, but really what he wanted was crack. He wanted to go out and buy crack. That's what he needed <laughs> the 50 bucks for. Right. So, Oh man. Anyways, it's 50 bucks that, <laughs> you know, I, I wish I'd I had had the game, but at the time I had a good relationship with um the fellow that, that owned the, the local video game trader. I mentioned this in our last episode and he ended up getting a copy of Christmas nights for me. So I didn't have to pay him 50 bucks. I paid him. I can't remember what it was something less than that. And I got my copy of Christmas nights and what an absolute delight it was. So yeah, I've got a really weird story about how (laughs) I came across Christmas nights, but, but yeah, so uh, Christmas nights is essentially a, um, it, it serves almost like a demo disc that's packed with tons of calendar and clock activated features that are not present in the, uh, in the full retail disc. And then over and above that, if you play the game um, during Christmas time, the uh, Claris's first level, which is Spring Valley is reskinned with all Christmas, you know, there's Christmas trees and snow is mm-hmm. falling and the grass is covered in snow and all the rest of it. And it's just lovely and wonderful. And the fact that it's all triggered by the Saturn's internal clock, which it's two competing machines did not have and therefore could never offer features that way was just right. super awesome and super unique. So I just, I'm curious, like what are some of your awesome, you know, experiences or memories with Christmas nights? Yeah, honestly, um, it's like the quintessential Christmas game. First of all, I think that when you can't find even on other consoles, it's hard to find another game that is so Christmassy, you know, you almost have to play it, you know, every, every year. And of course the, the price of it goes up, it spikes every Christmas, you know, because people want to get it and, you know, re-experience it. But yeah, you know, I just love, I love the music really festive. I love the funny little story at the beginning that's kind of nonsensical you know and and you've got this this lady i think she's japanese and doing her best to to speak english you know because it's kind of hard to understand but uh, you know not not nearly as good when they did like the remake uh on the ps2 or whatever they they had somebody else do the voice but yeah the original the original little uh FMV at the beginning where the kids, you know, slip and fall and everything. And they're trying to get a star for the top of the tree and stuff. You know, there's just so much about it. That's just um, charming, which is great for Christmas, you know, because that's what, you know, Christmas is a time of happiness and cheer and giving and stuff like that, you know, so it really does a lot to capitalize on, on those emotions. And, and of course the game plays classic nights, you know, it's, it's still nights, you know, but it's in a Christmas skin, you know, so you got, I think what um, Gil wing with a Santa hat, you know, and Christmas colors. And then I think, uh, is it puffy, but it's like Santa Claus. Um, yes. You know, there's new years, of course that, you know, if you, it, uh, the clock, the game used the Saturn's clock really, really um, to, to an awesome effect. So if you happen to be uh, one of those people who actually puts a new battery in your Saturn, instead of just letting it, uh, you know, give you that warning every time, uh, you know, if you set your Saturn's clock, it was one of the few games that really put that to good use. And you'd, you'd get uh, on December 25th, you know, you'd have the Christmas, the full on Christmas theme. You'd have like winter nights if it was, you know, approximately close to Christmas. And then, of course, you'd have like Happy New Year's, you know, um, mm-hmm. the music would change. You'd get gifts that you could open up and you could see pictures of 
of you know swag night swag you know you'd see uh, you know the original drawings you'd see um you know like you said uh, the ability to check on your um nightopians you know your little your little meepians you know um mm-hmm which is, it's always there, you know, it was always there in your save, but you didn't have the ability to look at it with such detail until that, you know, that really was something I think they wanted to put in the game, but they just didn't have time and they wanted to get it out to compete, you know, and to make this have help the Saturn have a good summer. Um, they weren't able to get that into the original game. And of course, so they were able to put it into Christmas nights and, and also, um, I love music. I'm a musician, so I really appreciate cyber sound and I appreciate what they were able to do with that soundtrack, the dynamic music. And and so the music box is probably the thing I love uh, as just kind of like a little extra. They didn't have to do that. You know, they didn't have to give you it, but they did. And it was like a free Christmas present, you know? See, that's funny because for me, the karaoke is the best present. I just oh, love Yes. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> it isn't. Oh my but God. I'll tell you. Okay. So my biggest draw at the time, like in 96, my biggest draw for getting Christmas nights was the ability to play Sonic into dreams. Oh, right. Remember I'd, you know, I'd really wanted a Sonic game for Saturn. We still hadn't yes. had one by this point. And so I needed to, to, I wanted to play Sonic on the Saturn. And so when I finally got my Christmas nights disc and I finally got to the point where I'd unlocked Sonic into dreams, you know, I played through it and it didn't play super well because the Knights sort of levels and the engine and, and the, the, the goals of the game are not well suited to a Sonic game. Right. And so, you know, it was it was a cool novelty, but it didn't really work as a, as a game. And it made me realize then and there how much I loved Knights for Knights and not because it was something to tide me over until the next Sonic game came along or whatever. So that was kind of a, that was an an important moment for me that, you know, I I finally got Sonic into dreams unlocked and I realized that I don't want to play Sonic. I want to play Knights, Mm you know, that was, it was a big deal for me. Absolutely. I'm trying to think of what else there was in the present section. There's, you know, not many people know, know this bit, but if you play the game on April the 1st, um, Knights is replaced by Riala, so you're actually playing right. as as Riala, right? So it's a it's a neat little uh, neat little hidden Easter egg in a game that's full of them, anyways. Speaking of Riala, um, or Riala, however you say his name, um, what is your favorite boss? I, I, I kind of want to know because you've got okay. So with the bosses, you've got um, Wise Man, the Wicked. You got Riala, mm-hmm. of course, which is kind of like your equal or your opposite. You know, he's the uh, and then you got Jackal, which is also Jackal kind of um, resembles kind of like a jester as well. You know, he's the closest mm-hmm. thing to looking like knights, you know. So he's a, he's a fun one. I, I kind of like Jackal, but th- there's also Gilwing, of course, classic. One of the first mm-hmm. bosses, Gulpo, Puffy and Claws. W- what's your favorite? OK, that's that's tough, Dave. But oh, so maybe it'll be easier for me to answer what's my least favorite. Because okay. I love them all except yes. for one. Claws and no Gulpo. Oh. I am not oh. a fan of Gulpo. I love Gulpo. Really? Are you kidding Isn't me? Yes, funny? I love Gulpo. It's kind of up to chance. It's kind of up to luck that battle. You can get incredibly lucky and get a feeling of elation, or you can get incredibly unlucky and just be <laughs> wanting to throw your controller. <laughs> See, and you mentioned Claws. I love Claws. What oh, I can't awesome stand Claws. <laughs> you know? Okay. So 
oh man, okay, story time. It took me a while to figure out how to efficiently get rid of claws. So, you know, he's got two rotating wheels uh, that go in different opposite directions, right? Um, And they've got these like mice type bomb things. So he ignites them. And if you don't um, uh, neutralize them by either paralooping them or drill dashing them, you know, they'll turn into like a, like a heat seeking bomb and they'll come after you. Mm. And so the trick is to be flying in the opposite direction of the rotation of the, the wheel thing that he's on. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And just as he launches himself off of one mouse to go and sit on another, your goal is to sort of destroy the mouse that he just launched off of because he's just ignited it. Now I got pretty good at doing that, but I could never really get a 2.0 on him and I couldn't understand why. So there was something I was missing and it wasn't until years and years later that I discovered that you can destroy those mice without him lighting them. You can paraloop them Mm. and very quickly eliminate the spots he can land on, even if he hasn't lit them up and like lit the fuse. And so then it just becomes this like super wild, like run to just try to time your paraloops so that the wheel with the mouse rotates into your paraloop as you're doing it. Oh, right. And so it's difficult, but it's like, wow, now I can get a 2.0. And so, so to me, I love Claus now because he's a very challenging boss in like a good way, you know? Right. So it's never a guaranteed 2.0 or anything like that, but you have to really work. To, that's to get crazy high, high, I'm high now support. now i'm gonna have another goal <laughs> i have to i have to to practice on uh on claws now you know when it comes to the nightmare and you've got a lot of fish i just noticed that a lot of them were fish but you've got cruel and pole you've got mamu you've got mm-hmm. cuddle which is kind of like a cuddlefish or something you got kirkle gal party sleep that's like a sheep you know snip hollow and veril i think Hollow is like an owl. Veril is some other kind of, you know, I hate Kirkle. I absolutely hate Kirkle. <laughs> he's the, he's the kind of, I don't know. He's got claws and he pulls you down Oh, and yeah. it's, it'll just, he'll get you. You'll have a perfect run going, you know, and then you just happen to run into Kirkle at the wrong time yep. and he'll pull you down and take like an extra five seconds off. And it's just, it kills me every time that I hate that nightmare. Yes. <laughs> With a passion. You know, so I, I play a lot on the um, uh, frozen bell level. And one of the enemies, his name is, I think, Gao. He's the yeah. electrical lion looking yes. guy. Yes. Uh-huh. Right. And the thing is, he's got free reign and he can run around and kind of get you at any point in the level. So you never really know right. where he's lurking. And, you know, you can usually see him and, you know, sometimes you can avoid him, but sometimes he gets you and it's like, ah. Oh. <laughs> and your run is ruined. So, you know, I mean, but that's that's the neat thing is the enemies aren't there necessarily for you to defeat them in order to progress. They are only mm-hmm. there to screw up a really good run for you. They're only there to impede you in your, mm-hmm. you know, collecting of a high score, which in and of itself to me is is quite genius because really you're not playing against them. You're playing against yourself and they're there mm-hmm. just to kind of trip you up. So. You know, it's just to me, it's another brilliant sort of design uh, choice that was made with the game. Yeah, there was another boss, of course, uh, another hidden character called Self, and he represented the Carl Jung's uh, archetype Self, of course, you know, Mm -hmm. but he did make it into the game. And um, I believe that through a recent data mine, uh, Grummer Warden, led led by Grummer Warden and several other individuals from the community, um, 
including like Digi Valentine, who's been publicizing it, uh, they've they've run into some remnants. You know, uh, they're trying to figure out if they could find you know more clues to you know what self was. You know, but the name definitely shows up in the credits uh, in the unused assets. You know, so that's another interesting little tidbit for folks is that there was actually an intended character that just didn't make it into the game yeah and i don't know if it's on the original soundtrack or if i found it elsewhere but there is an actual music track know thyself know thyself yeah yes yeah Yeah, isn't that crazy Mm -hmm. um since we're running up on time and we've this is going to be a long podcast for us you know since we're we're primarily a mini cast but it's okay this game is special enough to me i think it deserves uh, however much time we can throw at it um i kind of want to talk about something a little more ephemeral um, cause we've been talking about, you know, factual things about the game, you know, the mechanics and stuff like that. But I want to talk about how this game is kind of like, it's a wholesome game. You know, it's very childlike. I would say that it is not cool or not edgy enough for the time that it came out. And I think one of the reasons why that is, is because being a game about dreams, it explores vulnerability. And I think that at that time in the nineties, you know, everything especially on the PlayStation and it was trying to be so edgy and gritty and dark. And there was a fear of vulnerability. I think that Western games often had a tough facade, you know, because I, I think that there wasn't a good, a great enough emotional intelligence back then. Mm-hmm. Honestly, take a game like Sonic R again, a, a, a Sega game, you know, maybe it was developed by Traveler's Tales, but you had like Richard Jakes and you had TJ Davis create this beautiful music, this wonderful, wholesome music that, a lot of us just love, you know, but at the time they even had the option to not have the vocals in there. Right. Because you know, some people would trash talk and saying, Oh, it's, you know, it's too kitty or it's too sweet. You know, it's too um, pure. I don't really don't know what you want to call it, but it's not cool. Right. You know, it's not edgy and cool. Like the nineties, you know, it's the nineties. We it's grunge, you know, we got to be cool. And the music hasn't changed. It's the same music right. that it was back then. We've changed. A lot of us, I would say, have changed. We've grown up. We're parents. You know, society is more progressive. There's less of a a negative stigma placed on expressing feelings and emotion. So I'd say our emotional intelligence is greater. And we're now able to appreciate things that used to embarrass us, you know, due to pressures of societal norms at the time. Mm -hmm. And Nights is a game that might make you feel uncomfortable because it deals with things like anxiety, which we weren't really comfortable talking about at the time, you know? Digi Valentine is a person in the community who, like, when I think of knights, I almost think of this individual as being ever attached to this game, you know, because he was the one who he and Lynn Triplett, Trippy, uh, led the Dreamcast. They had a little podcast called the Dreamcast, and they did the official knights or the unofficial knights into dreams fan site, ran it back in the day. And he recently, within the last couple of years, released a video on YouTube about how knights presented anxiety um, in 1996 and how far ahead of society it was. And we can't not mention how important that was, because when you asked me at the beginning, what does nights mean to me? That's a big part of what it means to me. It touches me on this emotional level that as a kid, I really didn't know what it was. I really couldn't explain it, but it was a game that was more than a game. You know, it was like when I popped the CD into my CD player and listen to those kids sing the mushy little song about finding each other in dreams. You know, it just spoke to me. I was 16, you know, I had to go to school and put on a tough facade to be able to just get, you know, get through, get, you know, get by in society because that's what it was. But at the same time, here was a game that kind of 
understood, you know, uh, what it was like to deal with anxiety or what it was like to deal with stress, you know, uh, what it was like to not believe in yourself. You know, it just, there were so many things about this game that really touched me. And I, I think I'm biased, you know, and how much I love this game yeah. because of that. You know, my goodness, you know, looking back, gaming as a medium was so much more narrow back then, you know, it was either going to be a sports game or a game like an action type oriented game that had a very specific goal, rescue the princess, defeat the bad guy, do this, do that. And so Knights came along, not only was it abstract, but it dealt with, you're right, like anxiety, you know, emotional issues, um, you know, overcoming some of the sort of trials and tribulations of being a young teen, like Clarice and Elliot were, like being young children. And that's, I mean, I think in Japan, that sort of a, a game was much more acceptable, but in, in North America, uh-uh. And so mm-hmm. you're right. I think the theme of it, it could have definitely made folks uncomfortable because it certainly wasn't beat Bowser and rescue the princess, you know, right. That, and that, that's what we were all raised on. That's what was accepted. That's what was normal. But talking about, you know, a, a mental issue, like, like anxiety, like that, that just wasn't a thing. And so mm-hmm. you're right. Knights was definitely, um, uh, you know, in, in that sense, it was in a way trailblazing, but, but just like with most of Sega's history, it was a bit ahead of its time. You know, mm-hmm. nowadays, you know, to, to have themes like that explored in video games is normal. It's not, you know, there's tons of games that deal with all kinds of abstract, um, you know, uh, uh, themes or, or emotional issues or mental health or whatever. But back mm-hmm. then, it just it just wasn't a thing. So I, I agree, you know, that was definitely. But, you know, in a way, it, it added to its mystique. Like, you mm-hmm. knew this was more important than, you know, rescue the fictional princess. And I'm not trying to downplay Mario 64 or anything like that, but there was just, there was a maturity to, to the game, you know, over but also an innocence at the same time, you know, an innocence. And yeah. And at the end of the day, yes, like Knights didn't run around with a chainsaw or a machine gun or anything like that. Like it was, it was childlike and innocent and pure, but in a very, sort of cognitively dissonant way Mm. it dealt with these mature you know mental health type themes right and that's Mm. that was that was a very unique blend back in the day so so yeah that definitely at least for me it it helped sort of solidify why this was such an important video game yeah i i think that when music as an example would be overly positive like i i mentioned the the tj davis tracks and sonic r you know as an example um they're very positive they're just brimming with hope and and positive vibes and mm. back then of course that's just not that cool you know because you know everything wanted to be gritty and edgy uh and knights of course has a lot of positive aspects to it a lot of hope you know i mean I almost cried, you know, admission right here. (laughs) I almost cried when my character plummeted off the edge of that park in Twin Seeds and then Mm. soared up high up in the sky without knights, you know, just by themselves. And Elliot was flying by himself. And that was that feeling of just weightlessness. The game transcended just a game and it became something emotional. It was evocative. And um, it's crazy how media can do that, films, books, and in this case, a video game and the music that went with it, because it was everything. And I think that now as a parent, having had kids, like I said, I can kind of understand and appreciate 
the positivity and the hopefulness. And, and I think that I have a greater emotional intelligence where we can look back on something like the, the Sonic R soundtrack and say, you know what? It's just great. It's great. I, I like it. I don't care if it's goofy or maybe a little trite. It's okay because it's positive, you know, and there's so much negativity in this world, you know? So yeah, that's kind of my rant on that aspect of the game. You know, I want to just quickly mention Digi and Trippy. Yes. Um, at the time that uh, Sega had finally teased and revealed that they were going to work on a sequel to Knights, which ultimately became Knights Journey of Dreams on the Wii. Right. Digi and Trippy organized a almost like a letter writing campaign where they had asked fans to write what they would love to see in, you know, the sequel to Knights. And they were able to deliver all those letters to Takashi Izuka, who was at the time mm -hmm. uh, the head of Sonic Team, because Yuji Naka had, had moved on. And so, of course, I had written, you know, a couple of lines of, you know, what I wanted to see in the sequel to Nights into Dreams. None of it had co has come to pass, <laughs> right. of course, because being such a, such a dialed-in fan, I had some pretty pretty wild um you know desires of what i wanted a knight's sequel to to look like but um you know some of the things that i recall i don't know if all of this made it into the letter but i recall being adamant about the characters not having voices other than just you know the odd maybe squeal or grunt or whatever mm -hmm. just like in the original because you know i wanted to preserve that sense of interpretation so that the game can mean whatever they uh, whatever you want it to mean and i had even like i was sort of imagining well what would what other sort of issues could a game like that tackle in a very subtle way and i had wondered well what if one of the one of the kids in the game one of the protagonists what if they were homeless you know like what if their life issues that they were struggling with were miles away from what Clarice and Elliot, you know, were struggling with. What if in, what if, you know, as part of their journey um, through homelessness, they, they died, would they just fade away in their dream? Like, so these were the sorts of things that I was suggesting. Now that is, that is <laughs> so far out there that would never, you know, not even today, I don't think would it make a commercial game, much less a, a super important IP like Knights was to Sega at the time. But these were the sorts of things that I wanted Knights as a game to explore, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, so I, I feel what you are saying about, you know, the emotional, um, uh, the emotionality that the game drew out of you. And I think out of a lot of other people too, and, and the message of hope and the wholesomeness. And there is a, there is a way to explore the darker side of our emotions. I think without it becoming grotesque or gory, like think of Tim Burton, like he was able to explore sort of the darker side of things without ever, mm -hmm. um, you know, creating media that was full of blood or anything like that. So that's where I wanted to see Knights go. Anyway, so, you know, my letter ended up, thanks to to, to Trippy and, and Digi Valentine, uh, ended up making it to Takashi Izuka. I'm sure he read it, and I'm sure it went right into the waste bin, because <laughs> as, it, as it should have, right. as it should have, I'm sure. But yeah, but so, so in a way, you know, it had a similar emotional impact on me too. Like it got me thinking about what it is that, 
um, we as human beings struggle through and how that's portrayed in the media that we consume and how it affects us emotionally. So, so yeah, you know, it's, it's amazing. It, it's a, it's at the end of the day, it's a video game. And yet this is what we're talking about. This is the impact that it's had on us. So, mm-hmm. you know, like if that doesn't tell you that, that this is an important uh, media through which we express our humanity. I don't know what would, you know? Yeah. So, and yeah. I, you know, I see people still today who, you know, they have explored the game from nearly every aspect that you can. And they openly admit that they're still not sold on it. They're just like, it's just not for me. And I totally mm. respect that. I totally understand that. Um, it, it's not for everybody. It, it's probably is much more of an acquired taste than something like Mario 64. I, I can admit that, but man, it's for me, you know, like it just got me, you know, it got me and it still has me. Like, I love this game so much. Um, I wouldn't say it's the best game in the world, like objectively speaking, like the, maybe the best designed game or whatever, you know, but to me, fantasy star online is another one of those games that just, it was a watershed moment. It was, it was so important and it hit at such an important time in my life that I think that it tops this because it added the aspect of other people, you know, and a lot of the memories that I have with those people, I will never mm-hmm. forget, you know, they changed, changed me as a gamer and as a person. But again, it's another Sonic team game. And right. this is the only one that's the only one that maybe tops it. I know this is your favorite game of all time. So I think, you know, while I can admit that maybe it's not objectively the best designed or the best game in the world, it definitely is up there for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to just add one quick little uh, tidbit about me into this. Mm-hmm. So I own copies of Fantasy Star Online, as well as the version two that came out later, um, both mm-hmm. on Dreamcast. And I've never played them. So I say to you that Nights into Dreams is my favorite video game of all time. And you tell me mm-hmm. second to you behind Fantasy Star Online. And that is an experience I have yet to have. So <laughs> you owe it to yourself. <laughs> you know, who knows? I might be in t- for a hell of a treat once I've, you know, once I finally kind of dedicate some time and, and dive into um, to Fantasy Star Online on Dreamcast. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, again, I've come to realize that a lot of my feelings about games, especially at this age, are, are, are biased. Um, based on based on oh, certain factors, you know, it's like it's kind of hard to escape that. Um, I have much less biased feelings yeah. about something like uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild. You know, I think that that's objectively a great game and I'm, I have a lot of fun with it. And I don't know if I've developed any kind of memories that I'm going to take with me a decade from now or two decades from now about that game. But I mean, I can see it for what it is, you know. But with a game like Knights, it, it's so many different things, so many different factors. And I think gaming when we're younger, you know, we kind of have an alternate sense of reality. Um, it's really important. Some of these gaming experiences end up being incredibly important and life-changing, you know? Um, it can't be understated. I know a lot of people will just like to boil it down to, oh, it's just a video game. It's just a stupid video game, but it's not. You know, it's an artistic medium, just like anything else. Um, it can convey all sorts of things, you know, and it can mean all sorts of things to us. Um, and a lot of times when we are teenagers and we're, you know, learning how to be adults and, we're going through a lot of changes in our life. It's just, they, they just hit, you know, at, at, at the right time. So I know that that's a part of it, but I will take this game to my grave. <laughs> it's like one of my favorites of all time. Likewise. Yep. Same with me. The impact that it had on me as a gamer and as a person too is, is remarkable. And, and maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe it's just, there's that certain age at which we're growing and maturing 
where experiences of any kind will just have much more of a formative impact on us. Mm -hmm. But if that's the case, then I'm sure glad that I grew up during the Saturn era, you know? Yes. Because it was the path less traveled. Yeah. Like Robert Frost said, you know, I took the road less traveled. And that's exactly what Knights was. And it has made all the difference. And it has made all the difference. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Wow. I What a great conversation we've had. I have totally enjoyed you know, having a back and forth about nights into dreams with someone who is as passionate about it, who has experienced it right from the get go, essentially, and, you know, that we've been able to sort of deep dive so much about this game, you know, not just objectively, certainly objectively, but also, you know, from a sentimental um, uh, and nostalgic uh, lens. I think that's just that's just wonderful. Well, I really just hope that the folks listening to this cast, that it was a fun listen and that you got something out of it. And if anything, if you haven't tried this game, I hope that you go out and and give it a shot uh, because it means so much to Peter and I. And uh, until next time, you know, we just want to remind you that you must play your Sega Saturn and go check out Nights into Dreams. Until next time, it's been Shiro Editor's Corner, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody.